0: We are continuing our series in the book of Colossians, so if you'll be finding that, we are in chapter 1, of course, since we just began this last week, and we will be looking at verses 9 through 14. Colossians 1, 9 through 14. I am going to assume that you are committed to knowing and doing the will of God for your life. And when I say that, I think the next objection, perhaps, from you might be, If only I knew the will of God for my life, I would happily follow it. It seems to be one of the most often asked questions in the Christian life. How can I know God's will? How can I be certain that God is leading me and directing me along a certain path? Because if I knew that for certain, I would follow it. Single people often ask the question when they strive to, to make a decision as to whom they shall marry. Married people ask the same question years later. Did they make the right decision after all of those years? In fact, my wife probably asked herself that question this week when I called her to tell her that after nearly 27 years of marriage, I had lost my wedding ring. So she began to wonder, I suppose, I haven't talked to her since. She began to wonder about that decision. Young, young people fight this question as they consider the choice of college or careers. And then once established in a career, they are faced with a difficult decision as to whether they should take another job somewhere else, perhaps even moving to another city. People face this decision when it comes to the church that they are uh, to be a part of. Is this the place that God wants me to minister in and serve? All of these decisions in life bring up the question, what is the will of God for me? And we would like for God to write it on the walls of our living room so that we could be abundantly clear as to what he wants us to do. Sort of like King Belshazzar in the book of Daniel, only not with the negative results that he faced. But the fact of the matter is the Bible does not specifically address all of these issues of life. It does not tell us what career to choose. It does not tell us whom to marry, at least not specifically. It does not tell us what church to attend, again, at least not specifically. But I'm convinced there is a lot of God's will that we do know and can know. In fact, it's right under our noses if we will pay attention. I'm also convinced that the more we put into practice the will of God that we do know, the more likely we are to understand the will of God for the rest of our lives. In other words, the more we put into practice and obey the will of God that we know, the will of God that is clear in the word of God, the more those other decisions based on principle will come to light in our lives. Therefore, this morning we are going to be talking about knowing God's will. In other words, I want us to examine Scripture, and in, in, and in examining Scripture, we are going to see the will of God and seek to apply it to our lives. We certainly can't expect God to reveal more to us other than that He has already revealed. And so in this book of Colossians, we said last week that the theme, the overall aim of Colossians is coming from chapter 1 and verse 18, the preeminent Christ. And so today we are going to follow up with what we talked about last week. In fact, you're going to see some similarities to what we talked about last week. Because in the first section, Paul is thankful for the Colossian Christians. And he tells them specifically what he is thankful for. And then in the verses we are going to look at, at least beginning, he is praying in some respects for the same things that he's already thankful for in their lives. In other words, he is saying to them, I'm thankful that you have these things. However, you need to keep on. Just because you have these things now, do not grow apathetic nor indifferent. Instead, you are to continue on in these things, and I'm praying that that would be the case. So let's look at Colossians 1 and beginning in verse 9 as we think about knowing God's will. He writes, and so, from the day we heard... With joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I told you last week that Paul packs a lot of theology, even in a thanksgiving, and in this case, even in a prayer. So Paul is thankful for their lives, and now he's praying that they would continue on in the very things, at least in some cases, that he is already thankful for. You'll notice in verse 9 that it begins, and so. Some translations say, for this reason also. And so there is a connection between what we're talking about this morning and what we dealt with last week. In verse 3, Paul had said that he and Timothy pray for these believers on a regular and a consistent basis. And then in verse 9, the content of that prayer begins. This is an interesting section of Scripture because verse 9 through verse 20 is actually just one sentence. Now, I know in your English versions, there's periods all throughout. But in the original, verses 9 through 20 is one long sentence. We have it uh, divided up for us because we can't handle such a long sentence. We'd lose track of what's going on. But this is one long sentence. And in fact, my first year uh, of Greek in seminary, we did a year-long project on these verses. We spent the entire year diving into verses 9 through 20 and had to write a huge paper on it. And so you're thinking to yourself, well, he ought to know these verses then. But that was a long, long time ago, so uh, that doesn't mean I remember them well. But he begins by reminding us of his his fervent prayer line on their behalf. Ever since the day he heard of their, you remember that triad last week? Of their faith, hope, and love. Ever since the day he had heard of that, he has not ceased to pray on their behalf. And in fact, that, that phrase, we have not ceased, is the main verb in this section. What a wonderful model Paul is for us as we think about our prayer life. Most of us, maybe there's a a rare individual, but most of us would say that we're not happy with our prayer lives. Most of us would say, I know I need to pray more. I know I need to pray more often. I know I need to pray more spiritual prayers. Paul gives us a wonderful example in how to do that. In fact, if you're ever wondering how to pray for someone else, The example of the Apostle Paul, here and elsewhere, are wonderful examples that you can personalize and pray for yourself or for other believers. In fact, we did a life group book some time ago about praying Scripture, and here is a wonderful example, not that we just repeat the words, but here's a wonderful example of how you can take this section of Scripture and pray it for yourself or pray it for others. So let's take a moment to consider before we dive in here. Why is it that we struggle with our own prayer life? I think one of the reasons is prayer is simply hard work. It requires discipline. And the reality is many people are just not disciplined individuals. It takes time to develop a consistent prayer life. And we often quit before that time has been developed. And it is often easy to get distracted When we are praying, I mean, it never fails when I begin to pray that the phone is going to ring or something is going to chime, giving me a notice that someone has sent something to me. And then my mind immediately goes to that and I can't help but look at whatever it is that has been sent to me. And usually it is nonsense. Furthermore, many of us are people of action. We want to do something and we believe subconsciously, that prayer is rather uh, not active. And therefore, we, we seem like, we think, we're wasting time. And then there is the subjective nature of prayer. After all, we are praying to a God that we cannot see, and we are uh, praying to a God who we sometimes doubt even hears or answers the very prayers that we are praying. And then when he does not answer our prayers... It simply accelerates the idea that why should we pray? God has not answered the last one. And so if we're honest, we are often discouraged in our prayer life because of a perceived lack of response on God's part. We have prayed for the salvation of a loved one, and yet they have not been saved. We have prayed for the physical healing of a loved one, and they continue to struggle with their disease or they have already died from it. Why didn't God answer? Many Christians are heard to proclaim. We are praying for our nation, believing that our nation in many ways is heading in the wrong direction and therefore urging God to to redirect our country back to Him. And yet there does not seem to be any sign that that is indeed occurring. Where is the healing for our country? Where is the prosperity and the return to morality? What if God never answers that prayer? What if he continues to allow this country to head in the wrong direction? And the response to all of this is we often simply cease to pray. If we begin to doubt that God is listening and that God will respond favorably, then it's a short step to conclude that there is no sense in praying. So there are many reasons. I could go on and on. There are many reasons why our prayer lives are not what we want them to be and not what we know they ought to be. But here's a wonderful example of how Paul, and I remind you that he did not know these people personally. He had never been to Colossae. He did not found the church there. And yet he has a burden for their Christianity. So if you find yourself in a situation where you don't know what to pray, these verses are a wonderful model of Christian prayers for one another. Paul was a man of prayer. And his prayer for these Colossian believers and for all believers is this that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will. What a wonderful prayer for a parent to pray for their children. Instead of being focused on their career or other things, how about praying that they would know the will of God for their lives? Our prayers are often concentrated on financial or physical concerns. But Paul's primary concern for these believers was not their physical life and not their financial life, but for their spiritual life. That they would know the will of God, which takes wisdom and understanding. Wisdom is the acquisition of knowledge, but not just knowledge, the application of that knowledge once it has been attained. In other words, wisdom is not just knowing something, but wisdom is the ability to apply that to a specific situation in life. And that is what Paul wanted for them. There's certainly no great benefit in knowing what God wants if we choose not to do it. And so beginning in verse 10, Paul gives us the results of knowing and doing God's will. So we're not so much going to look at how do I know God's will... We're going to look at the results of knowing God's will. And then when we finish, we're going to come back and say, okay, are these four things true in my life? And if so, it's an indication that I know and are applying God's will. But if not, it's an indication that we are not in God's will. Sometimes we know what to do, but we don't actually do it. We have the knowledge, but we're not putting that knowledge into practice. And so Paul makes it very clear in the progression of these verses that gaining knowledge about God is only relevant if it leads to a life that is pleasing to God. What we know about God ought to show in the way we live our lives. The New American Standard says that you might walk worthy, that you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. The word walk there is indicative of our life, not physically walking, but living our lives in a manner that is conducive to pleasing the Lord. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So what are the four results, the four indicators that indeed we do or do not know the will of God and are applying it to our lives? Are we living a life pleasing to God? Well, first of all, he says, if that is true, we ought to be productive Christians. Knowing the will of God leads to lives that are productive. And again, we talked about this last week. So this is nothing new if you were here. We talked last week about bearing fruit. And again, he says the same thing here. We tend to think that knowing the will of God is so subjective. I don't know what God wants me to do. If he would just tell me, I would do it. But there is, there is actually some objective elements to the will of God, and here is one. Are we being productive Christians? That is, can we look at our lives and see that we are bearing fruit? Now, there's many ways we can look at this, but let me just give you one example. We know that the will of God is that we share our faith, that is evangelism. We know that the will of God is very clear in Scripture that we ought to be not only living our lives in a manner pleasing to the Lord, but sharing our faith with others. And yet most of us do not do that on a regular basis. So here's an element of God's uh, will that we know, that we are to be productive Christians. Every believer, and we said this last week, every believer has a responsibility to be involved in making and maturing believers. And if we're not doing that, then at least in that area, we are outside of the will of God. We are, the Great Commission says, to be making disciples of all of the nations. We know that to be the will of God beyond any doubt. It is very objective. And that is one of the fruits, that is one of the produce that we are to be producing. And the question becomes, are we doing that? I began reading a book this week on the life of R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul died a few years ago. He was a longtime minister in a a Presbyterian denomination, but went well beyond his local church. He wrote many books and spoke uh, at many conferences. So many people know the the ministry of R.C. Sproul. He was saved as a college student, I believe it was, because he he went and met another college student. And this this other college student was reading the Word of God. And he shared with him Ecclesiastes 11 and verse 3. And it was the second half of that verse that led to his salvation. The second half of that verse says, if a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place it falls, there it lies. You say, well, how is that evangelistic? It's not. (laughs) I mean, it's not. And R.C. Sproul said he's probably the only person that's ever been saved from Ecclesiastes 11 verses 3b. And yet God used his word spoken through another person to bring this man to faith. And R.C. Sproul had a tremendous influence upon millions of people throughout his ministry. I think Paul is also alluding here to what we call the fruit of the Spirit. Bearing fruit in every good work means that we are to bear the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Love, joy, joy peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These qualities are not to be reserved for just those who are serious about their relationship with Christ. These are to be characteristic of every believer who is applying the will of God to our lives. You ought to be able to look at that list and say that I am increasing in those qualities. I'm not perfect, but I'm better today than I was last year and better then than I was 10 years earlier. You ought to be able to take that list, examine it, and see that you are making progress in these particular qualities because these are the fruit of the Spirit. And I remind you of something I've said before. Fruit is singular. We talk about fruits, plural, of the Spirit, but that is not the way Paul words it. He talks about the fruit of the Spirit. So it's not that we're to look at at that list and say, well, I'm good over here, I'm doing better here. It's all one. And we are to exhibit all of those things increasingly in our lives as we know and apply the will of God. So am I following the will of God for my life? Well, are you a productive Christian? Are you bearing fruit? Secondly, we notice that knowing the will of God and applying it to our lives leads to growing. Christians. And we talked about this again last week, that you are increasing in the knowledge of God. It's interesting that Paul talks often in this letter about knowledge. There was a heresy in the second century known as Gnosticism. And there has been a long scholarly debate concerning the letter of Colossians as to whether Gnosticism is the problem that lies behind the letter. Remember I told you last week that there's clearly something going on here that has led to Epaphras coming to Paul and telling him what's going on and Paul writing this letter. And so there's been this long scholarly debate as to whether the problem is Gnosticism. Most scholars now believe that that was not the problem in Colossae because we have no evidence of it really taking place until the second century. However, there are some who believe that at least in its early forms, it's going on in this church. Now, Gnosticism, the word gnosis, is the Greek word for knowledge. And so Paul uses the word knowledge over and over again in this letter. See, he doesn't come to this situation and say, well, well, maybe the false teachers... Are proclaiming a knowledge beyond Christ. That is, that's okay if you know that, but you've got to know more. And in doing that, Paul does not demean the idea of knowledge. Instead, he builds it up and says, no, you need knowledge, but the knowledge must be in God. You got to have the right kind of knowledge. Ignorance is not bliss when it comes to our relationship with God. It's amazing how many believers de emphasize knowledge. People today want experience rather than knowledge. Ultimately, it is not an either-or question. Yes, we ought to experience God, but that experience must be rooted in knowledge or our faith is purely subjective. We are in danger of becoming like the Athenians, to whom Paul wrote that they had no idea who God was as evidenced by the fact that they had a statue to an unknown God. Just in case they might have forgotten some God out there, they erected a statue to a God that they did not know. And that is, in in fact, what many people in our country are doing, trying to worship and serve a God whom they do not know. Knowledge of God is what nurtures and feeds our growth. True growth in godliness is impossible without the knowledge of God. It is like the rain that waters our yards or our gardens it is necessary for those fruits and vegetables or grass to grow. I know we have irrigation, and I know we try to water those things, but I've heard countless people who garden say through the years there's just nothing like a good rain. It doesn't matter how much you water your garden, it is the rain that ultimately helps it. And it is the knowledge of God that helps us grow in our relationship with God and grow as Christians. So how do we grow in the knowledge of God? Well, most truth must be learned, but divine truth is revealed. We must rely upon God to reveal himself to us. And by that I do not mean we induce ourselves into some kind of trance so that we uh, can understand God. The fact is he has already revealed himself in the pages of his word. So our responsibility as Christians is to read and study the word of God and trust that the Holy Spirit of God will illumine our hearts and minds as we read and study so that we can understand what we read. In other words, we must rely upon God to reveal himself to us, but at the same time, we must put ourselves in an environment conducive to spiritual growth whereby God can reveal himself to our minds. So growth in the knowledge of God is not going to happen unless you and I make some pivotal choices. First of all, we must decide to read God's word personally. I know I say this all the time and I know you hear it all the time, but we must read the word of God if we expect to grow as Christians. And we are fortunate in the fact that we have the word of God in our own language. In fact, we are well beyond that now. We are fortunate that we can take the word of God with us wherever we go. Because most of us have a copy of the Bible on our phones or on our devices now. And so instead of reading some magazine that's in the waiting room, we can read the Word of God when we have some time to kill waiting on the doctor's call. There is just so many opportunities for us now to read the Word of God personally that we must avail ourselves to it. But we certainly ought to read the Word of God corporately as well. Study the Word of God corporately. That is why we have Sunday school. In just a few moments, we'll be dismissed, and you will be encouraged to go to a Sunday school class where 8 or 10 or 20 people will be gathered together in that room for the purpose of studying the Word of God corporately. Eight or 10 heads are better than one. And so we get together, and we look at the Word of God together, hopefully, so that we can learn from the Word of God and learn from one another. It is why we do so many other things in this church it is why we have Wednesday night Bible studies, which will begin back, hopefully, uh, in September. It is why we offer discipleship classes from time to time. It is why we do a large majority of the things we do, because we want to come together and study the Word of God. So we ought to read the Word of God personally. We are to read the Word of God corporately. And you say, well, sometimes when I go to Sunday school, I just don't get anything out of it. That might be true. It might be the case that that's because you're not putting anything into it. It might just be because you've not prepared yourself and you've not read it ahead of time and you've not come expecting to get something out of it. Or it might just be an off Sunday. You know, you don't always get something out of a Bible study. You don't always get something out of every sermon I preach. I'm aware of that. Some sermons are good, some not so good. Some Sundays you come and you say, well, that was, that was wonderful. I've got something that I can, I can use this week. And sometimes you say, well, it was just another Sunday. It's not that every single time we open the word of God or every single time we hear a sermon, there's going to be this mountaintop experience that is going to shatter our lives. It is the cumulative effect of studying and reading and hearing over and over and over again that ultimately brings about the transformation. So don't judge it based on one time reading the word or one time hearing the word. You know, you you send your children to practice all kinds of sports or all kinds of activities. If they come home one time and they say, "I, I I didn't make any progress today, you don't quit. You say, well, maybe you'll get something on Thursday. You send them back and they practice over and over and over again. And the same thing is true when it comes to our spiritual lives. We are to read the Word of God, study the Word of God, hear the Word of God over and over again and cumulatively cumulatively that is going to have an impact so our goal is the knowledge of God and that knowledge of God is going to lead to growth as a Christian as a man thinks so he is Proverbs 23 and verse 7 says and therefore we need to think the word of God All right, thirdly, not only is the will of God seen in whether or not we are productive believers and whether or not we are growing believers, but thirdly, we see that we are to be strengthened Christians. Paul says in verse 11, strengthened with all power. This strength comes from God and leads to endurance and patience. Who doesn't need more endurance and patience? Endurance has the idea of being able to bear up under difficult circumstances. It's the ability to remain firm and committed in the midst of trials and tribulations. And how disheartening it is to see professing believers who walk away from following God just because times have gotten tough. This won't happen if you know the will of God and are applying it to your life. Patience or long-suffering The distinction seems to be that endurance deals with tough times and patience deals with tough people. That is, we have to be patient with people because all of us have people in our lives who who just get under our skin just a little bit and therefore it requires patience to deal with them. But we can have the strength from God. You notice that all of these things come from God. That's why Paul is praying that God would do it in their lives, that we be strengthened with all might. So that we can endure and have patience. And then the fourth thing, the last characteristic we notice here, is that we can be joyful Christians. This leads to joy. The end of verse 11, you find the word joy. There's a, a bit of an issue here, at least when it comes to understanding the text. I know you're going to say, well, it's with verse 11, and therefore it says, uh, in, in being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. So the writers, uh, the interpreters of Scripture, the writer of Scripture is God, of course, but the interpreters of Scripture have taken joy with verse 11. But grammatically, I think it's actually better that it goes with verse 12. I won't go into why that is the case. But I'll tell you that I think joy goes with verse 12. So that it's giving thanks with joy. We endure, we have patience, and the end result is we give thanks to God with joy. We are joyful Christians. So let me state the opposite. If we are not joyful Christians, then we are not currently in God's will. Now, I don't mean by that that we must always be happy. Happiness and joy are two different things. Happiness, as the term implies, depends upon circumstances. I am happy when things go my way. I'm not happy when things don't go my way. But joy is something quite different. Joy is something that we can have at at all times and through any circumstances because it is an inner quality that recognizes that God is in control of all things and therefore we are joyful because of all that he has done for us. And Paul reminds us of three things that God has done, which should bring joy to every believer. First, he says that God has qualified us for an inheritance. We don't earn an inheritance. An inheritance is given to us. And we are qualified for that, not on the basis of our works, but God is the one who has qualified us for it. You know that the, the Olympic Games are going to come around this summer we not able to take place last year, so they're going to happen this summer in Tokyo. For the Olympic Games, athletes must qualify to participate in their sport. So when you and I gather in front of our televisions this summer to watch that, what we often don't understand is those athletes have been trying to qualify for a year or more to just participate. Even the last place participant had to qualify in order to get there. In another sport, I saw a video this week of a 27-year-old man who's been trying and trying to get on the PGA Tour for years. And finally, this past Monday, he made about a 20-foot putt on the last hole of a qualifying tournament to qualify for the PGA Tour event that's taking place this week for the first time in his life. Now, sadly, he didn't make the cut, so he's not playing this weekend, but he did make the tournament. And there's a viral video going around of him calling his dad after he made that putt. And he's crying. And his dad and mom on the other end of the phone are crying. And he he simply says, Dad, I made it. I finally qualified. And these were tears of joy because they had been qualified. And Paul says spiritually, that ought to be true of every believer, that not because of our effort have we been qualified, but God has qualified us because our greatest need was righteousness. And God in Christ has given us his righteousness. Therefore, we are qualified for an inheritance. Secondly, he says, verse 13, that God has rescued us. He has removed us from the authority of darkness and put us into Christ's kingdom. Again, it is God doing this, not we ourselves. It was God who has reached down and snatched us from the jaws of eternal death and through no merit of our own given us a place in heaven. Paul's audience was keenly aware that conquering kings often marched prisoners. That is, they would conquer other people, and they would take those people and march them in a procession into town. Those people who were once free, now they're marching them into slavery. And Paul says God has done the opposite for us. We who were once slaves, God is now marching us into freedom." He has qualified us. He has rescued us. And verse 14, he has redeemed us. He has redeemed us by forgiving us of our sins. And just the mention of these three things. This is a wonderful passage of Scripture. Just the mention of these three things that God has qualified us and rescued us and redeemed us is going to lead Paul in the rest of this sentence down through verse 20 to say some very high things indeed about Jesus Christ. Now that's going to have to wait for next week. But next week we will see that Christ is indeed preeminent in all things. So God has qualified you for heaven. He has rescued you from death. He has redeemed you from sin by forgiving you of sin. And again, Paul actually doesn't say a lot about the forgiveness of sins. Only six times in all of his letters does he mention forgiveness of sins. And five of those six are in Ephesians and Colossians. Leading some commentators to say that perhaps part of the issue in Colossae was that the false teachers were saying that somehow Jesus was not capable of forgiving us of our sins and Paul's reminding them that indeed yes he is preacher how can I know the will of God for my life nine times out of ten when I hear that question someone wants to know a specific decision in their life they're not interested in the overall picture of God's will just this one decision How can I make this decision so that I know it's the right decision and I won't get in trouble and I will be blessed by God? But what we've talked about this morning is not the will of God for a specific decision. We've talked about the will of God overall for our lives. And that is a life pleasing to God. How do I know if my life is pleasing to God? Well, are you a productive Christian? Are you a growing Christian? Are you a strengthened Christian? Are you a joyful Christian? If you can recognize these qualities increasingly in your life, then I would say, again, overall, that you do know the will of God and you are applying it to your life. On the other hand, if you would say, I I don't recognize these four things in my life, then I would have to conclude along with you that you do not know the will of God, nor are you applying it to your life. Remember, Paul here is praying... Asking God to increase the Colossian believers in these things. So even if on first glance this morning you say, well, I don't see these things in my life. Then take these verses and pray them for yourself. Take these verses and pray these for the people you know in your life. That these things would be increasing. And therefore we would know that not only we know the will of God, but we are applying it to our lives in a walk that is worthy or pleasing to him. That ought to be the aim of every Christian. And it can happen if we apply this text to our lives. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for revealing yourself to us. Lord, I know we sometimes struggle with specific decisions in our lives about what to do and where to go. But ultimately, you have revealed yourself to us so that we have everything we need for salvation and for growth in godliness. I pray that we would not get hung up on specific decisions but instead we would desire to know your will so that we could walk worthy so we can live a life pleasing to you and as we've seen this morning a life that is pleasing to you is at least in this text seen in these four things lord may these things be increasingly true of every believer here this morning is our prayer in jesus name amen let's stand and sing and you respond